you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. I'm going to jump right in this morning because I have a lot to say, uh, and it's a very dense message, Um, but that's the way series start off. And I realized this morning uh, that how important it is in in the first sermon of a series to give it a good setup and to make sure that you say all the things that need to be said before you say the things you want to say. Uh, in the academic world, we call that the prolegomena, uh, all the things you have to say before you get to say what you want to say. And I just realized this week, I left poor Dan Kava to do that on his own in the last series. So Dan, kudos to you, man. Like it didn't hit me the weight of doing the initial sermon until this one, especially for complex books, right? And, and books that we necessarily aren't always very well acquainted with within the Christian tradition. And James is one of those that, it's funny, James is one of those books we're acquainted with in part, right? It's one of those books that people know a few quotes from regularly. But it's not one of those books that the church historically has really spent a lot of time with. As much as we have the writings of Paul, say, or even the writings of Peter. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, so we're kicking off our uh, final summer series this morning, and it is entitled Faith Works. And over the next five weeks, uh, we are going to follow the lectionary as the lectionary works through several different passages from the book of James. Uh, now the title, let me tell you what, I changed the title on this like three times. Poor Ruth, she was making the graphic for me, and I gave her a final one, and then I changed it, right? She went on vacation, she came back and was like, Ruth, I hate to do this to you. I want to change this title again. Um, And even this one I feel like doesn't adequately uh, explain or adequately describe um, what we're going to cover in the book of James. But it's a good one. Uh, It's a good title because it's drawn from the words of James itself. The title comes from a couple of passages. Again, these are passages that if you've been in church any amount of time, you might be familiar with. Um, But the first passage is in James chapter 2 verses, uh, excuse me, James chapter 2 verse 17 where James emphatically claims that faith without works is dead. And the second passage where we're getting this title from is from our reading today, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. Now the book of James is overtly concerned with how Christian behavior should embody the faith we claim to have. The book is addressed to, if you go back to the first verse of James, the book is addressed to Um, The 12 tribes of Israel, the the Jews who are spread out, obviously uh, these are Christian Jews. These are Jewish Christians, uh, individuals who have a long heritage of faith in God, who have now come to faith in the Messiah. Uh, This group of people, this audience that James has written to, uh, is expressly written to a group of people um, who were steeped in religion, who were steeped in their faith in God. In other words, these are not first-generation believers in God, right? Whereas in Ephesians, Paul is speaking to both the Jewish community and the Gentile community who is experiencing as a first-generation believer uh, faith in the Messiah. 
So James' audience is a religious audience. It's an audience steeped deep in the faith. It's not a first-generation audience that has put their faith in God. They've had centuries of ethic and history to draw from in their faith and had now evolved this faith, or as this faith had evolved now, into their faith in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. I said all that to say this. James' audience is not too much different today because these are words that we are reading and hearing as a Christian generation. Um, Many of us steeped in this thing from our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. Many of us raised in church, our parents raised in church, our great-grandparents raised in church. We live in a society here that has been largely impacted by the church and what the church has done, even politically, right? Uh, The church has played a role in the shaping of the world and the society we now live. So uh, these words here that James is is giving is not the, the audience is not so different now as it was then now James theological concerns don't seem to carry the same import as the theological concerns of Paul or the reformers in fact Martin Luther struggled so much to make James necessary uh, within his revisioning of the Christian faith that he once referred to it as um, as an epistle of straw now Luther's problem was Luther didn't feel like James offered us anything new uh, within the context of the New Testament. Luther felt like, if anything, James was a stumbling block because it put too much emphasis on works. Uh, And, of course, Luther had an issue with that as he was working through things and, and his understanding of what the faith is and what it looks like in contrast to what it had become uh, within the context of the Catholic Church. So Luther might have been right a little bit, that James doesn't really bring us anything new, anything else theologically that is not found elsewhere in the New Testament. He was right about that. But what Luther was wrong about was its contents being shallow or unnecessary. That even though it doesn't necessarily bring something new to the table that can't be found elsewhere in the New Testament, it does bring it in a certain way. Um... It says it in a certain way. It frames it with certain images. What James lacks in offering any new theological insight, it makes up for with its vivid metaphors and sharp, concise language. It might be said that James' writing adds life to the themes of the New Testament in the same way that he feels our behaviors should add life to the faith that we claim, which is really James' passion in this letter, right? Like that, that is from front to end, that is his passion in this letter. That our faith be enlivened by our actions. That what we say we believe is made alive or embodied or incarnated even in the way that we live and the way that we act. He was much more concerned with the wisdom that we would display through our lives than he was with the wisdom we might nail to the doors of our cathedrals. That is what James is concerned with. He's not necessarily concerned with the propositions of what we believe as he is with calling the church, calling those who claim faith in Christ to act like they really believe what they say they believe. Now, wasting no time employing his powerful imagery, 
James begins this letter uh, by calling our attention to the image of a God who not only transcends the stars of our skies, the Father of lights, not only does he transcend the stars of our sky, but who, unlike the heavenly bodies, is not affected or altered by an ever-changing cosmos. James is painting a picture for us of a God who in light and in darkness, he is a good father who is always a giver of perfect gifts. In fact, James says, every generous act of giving itself that is found in the cosmos comes from the essence of our good and giving Heavenly Father. Now, this, by the way, becomes the nexus for every other exhortation we are going to read in the book of James, and particularly this morning. This idea that God is good and transcendental and, and, and that he is a giver and that it, from his very essence, all giving flows that is found in the entire cosmos, all giving flows from the goodness of our good and benevolent, benevolent Heavenly Father. Aren't you glad he's good this morning? Amen? So this becomes the nexus for that, right? Um, moreover, it takes the burden off of us to hear the commands that follow these words, this painting of a picture of God, the, the commands that come after it. The burden is off of us to hear these commands as we might hear them if our view of God is that God is this, you know, God who has these standards out there for us and if we don't meet them, he's, he's the father who just can't wait to smack us down for not being good enough, right? Um, if that's the kind of God we have in mind when we hear these commands in James, we'll never be able to fully embody them because the commands or the exhortation that James is going to give us in this letter flow out of a belief that the God that we have faith in is a good God who wants nothing more than the best for our lives. That what we are doing is not to please or satisfy God or to make God happy with us, but what we're doing is in response to a God who has already shown his goodness to us through his giving and his essence of being a good uh, and benevolent giver of gifts and a good and benevolent father. Uh, this response, this um, call from James to do good and to live holy and to live morally is contingent upon the goodness of God. His goodness gives us what we need to live the kind of good life that James is proposing. But I also want you to hear this. Because God is good... Not only does he give us what we need to live the kind of life that James is proposing, God also gives us room to fail in doing it. He gives us room to fail at it, to not be so good at it. Because he is good and his intentions for us are good. This past week I had a, during a meeting, uh, Dustin Counts actually shared a little bit about his experience with Boy Scouts. Any other Boy Scouts in the room, by the way? Like... Yeah, cool, okay, so some of you are familiar with it. Um, the Counts guys are all Eagle Scouts. That blows my mind, by the way. All the Counts men have, have Eagle Scouted. But 
Dustin was talking to me about the Boy Scouts, and he was talk, telling me how a properly ran troop will be equipped and commissioned to carry out every task necessary to function as an active, healthy troop. For those of you who don't know, Boy Scouts is youth-led. The boys lead it all. The Scoutmaster is there just as a guide. Uh, so the, a, a good troop will be equipped and commissioned to carry out every task necessary to function as an active and healthy troop. But part of the confidence imparted to the boys who were responsible for doing everything on their own was a culture that provided them space to fail. Boys grew into their roles as scouts by being equipped, by being given precise instructions on what they were to do as scouts, but also by knowing that they were loved and cared for enough by their leaders to fail and still make it. This is what James is imagining for the people of God. James is imagining our service from God, following God's instructions, being equipped by this giver of gifts, all falls under the umbrella that God has our best interest in sight. That these are not rules to follow, to please God, so that God will be happy with us, but that these are ways in which God has called us to live, and because of God's goodness and grace, we have the space to find our way through it as we strive to live it out. In verse 18, we learn that this heavenly Father who gives good and perfect gifts has given us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creature, creatures. That is to say that God has started a new life in us and that we who claim faith in Christ and who claim to be experiencing this new life in our very being become some kind of witness to the fruit God is growing through his people and for the benefit of the world. By the way, this is actually what it means to be born again, right? I mean, within James' understanding of salvation, this giving of the word of truth to us that births something in us, that, that creates this new birth in us, uh, within his soteriology or his understanding of salvation or what it means to be saved, this is what it means to be born again. And I know in our world that, ha that term has taken on a lot of very different meanings. Um, before it meant something propositionally, before it meant something politically, which it has become to mean something politically, it was the idea that Christ had initiated something in us. Listen to this. This is, this is important to James' argument in his letter. That through the word of truth, Christ has initiated, Christ has started something in us. Being born again, contrary to popular evangelical culture, being born again isn't God's final purpose for our life. No one's birth is the climactic moment of their life, amen? Your birth is not all there is to it. There's so much more that comes. The birth, yeah, it's very important. Without it, there is no you. But it is only the beginning of something. It is not the climax of something. 
And this is true of our spiritual rebirth as well. In verse 18, James proposes that our new birth has been produced by the word of truth that has been given to us. But in verse 21, James says, the salvation of our souls is the product of our full reception of that word. And for James, the full reception of that word is accomplished through our doing of the word and not merely our cognitive belief in it. Okay? Is that clear as mud this morning? That what has been started in us is fully received and embodied through our doing of it, not just our belief in it. John Wesley referred to this movement from believing in the given word to a fully functioning uh, faith within the word as Christian perfection. Now, we all know that is like the worst phrase he could have ever used for this, right? I went and heard Nadia Bowles Weber a few months ago, and, you know, she makes this joke about Methodists. She's always like, so how's that perfection thing working out for y'all? Uh, so it's not the best term, Christian perfection. But Wesley described what he was talking about, this process of going from this initial birth through the Word, through this embodied living out of the Word, by saying it is a purity of intention, dedicating all the life to God. It is the giving God all our heart. It is one desire and design ruling all of our tempers. It is the devoting, not a part, but all our soul, body, and substance to God. So kudos to Zach for following the Spirit in the worship this morning. Um, he did not know I was going to quote Wesley, but this is in essence, Wesley is driving at some of the same things that Merton is driving at. And then James again refer, re, returns to, this powerful, to powerful word pictures by using the metaphor of a mirror. This is a great metaphor because I think it's one we can all relate to. If you don't know what he's talking about, go to peopleofwalmart.com, right? Because we've all been to Walmart and seen those people who we think, um, did they look in the mirror before they went out in public? And sometimes we're the ones who go to Walmart looking like we didn't look in the mirror before we got there because Walmart is a safe space, right? <laughs> There's lots of grace on aisle five, loads of it, brand new and very cheap. So James again re returns to these word pictures, these metaphors, which we're going to see throughout this letter. And he uses this imagery of a mirror and he says that if you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, you are just as deceived as someone who looks in the mirror and does not respond to what they see, but walks away forgetting what the image that they had looked into had showed them. And the message is clear. To hear the word and not do the word is deceit. It is ignorance. It is being given something by which we should reflect on and walking away from it with no application. No real-life response. Magri de Vega suggests 
that we think not only about what the mirror of God's perfect law might show us about ourselves, but what it might show us about God. She says, Imagine a mirror that reflects back to the viewer all of God's grace, love, peace, and joy that have been working in and through a person's life. The fullness of a person's salvation in Christ. Then an appropriate, then an appropriate, respons an appropriate response would be to turn from that mirror and immediately forget what was, ex what was experienced Excuse me. The inappropriate response would be to turn from that mirror and immediately forget what was experienced in that mirror or in the language of this passage, heard. The appropriate response to seeing the reflection of God's goodness and His salvation and His work in our life would be to live in grateful response and to express that gratitude outwardly. To be a doer rather than than just a hearer. Now teleologically, James says that this kind of religion, this kind of living out of what we have received, this kind of embodying the faith that we have um, put our faith in, that we have embraced uh, as believers in Christ, this faith as it is acted out, James calls it religion later on, this participation in the life of God, uh, teleologically, James says that this kind of religion, the kind that does not mark it in empty words, but in active participation, is seen in its purest form in how we take care of the least among us. James specifically talks about the widows and the orphans. By the way, he is drawing from a very rich Jewish historic ethic here. Um, the law. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all tell the people of God that they should hold in view the least of these, particularly the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. So he's drawing from that here. And he's saying the kind of religion that he wants to see his brothers and sisters embody will ultimately end up as the kind of religion that looks after and takes care of the least of these in the world. Now, as promised here earlier, this act of doing the word that is saving us, uh, James says in verse 25 that as we do it, as we look into the perfect law, as we, as we act out our faith, he says, that we will be blessed in our doing. James points out, though, as we go through this chapter, that this blessing is not just for us. By the way, blessings are never just for you. Blessings are always to give. There, there's something about the blessings of God. When God blesses us, it is a divine interruption in the flow of our own lives so that we might pass on that divine blessing. We are blessed to bless others. We are gifted to share our gifts with others. That's why community is such an important value. We don't, we don't live out our Christian faith in a vacuum. We don't, we don't live it out in isolation. We live it together as we share the gifts and the blessings that God has given us. And in this reading this morning, James tells us that when we become doers and not just hearers, when we become active participators in the faith that we claim, 
And when we serve the least of these, we are blessed, and that blessing goes on to be a blessing to others. You see, James is not concerned with a works-based religion that seeks the approval of God. Listen, this, this is kind of, if there's a thesis for this morning's sermon, this is it. James is not concerned with a works-based religion that seeks the approval of God as much as he is concerned with a faith that works for the most vulnerable among us, a faith that works for those who are most easily oppressed. So let's close this morning with some examples from James' Jewish faith and our Christian biblical faith. Um, some examples of people whose faith led to obedience and that obedience led to the blessing of others. Just a few of them. Abraham. Abraham who relocated his family to a far country and became the patriarch of a great people. In fact, God even tells Abraham, I'm blessing you, but you are going to be a blessing to others and your seed is going to be a blessing to the world, he says. Moses, who boldly confronted Pharaoh and led the people of God to liberation. Who did not just hear what was said to him through the burning bush, but took radical action based on what he believed to be the word of God spoken from a burning bush. Esther, whose risk-taking sacrifice saved her people from massacre and genocide. David, whose remembrance of God's past, excuse me, David, whose remembrance of God's past saving activity empowered him to slay a giant. Who went out in front of Goliath and boldly proclaimed, and we preached this a few weeks ago, and boldly proclaimed, hey, I got this because God has helped me in the past. I've killed bears and I've killed lions, and I know that God will give me the power to slay this giant who believed what he had seen in God's faithfulness and then continued to act on it. Mary, who courageously said yes to God and became a blessing to the world by giving birth to the Messiah. And Jesus, finally, who was obedient to his own death so that his body might be broken and his blood spilled as a Eucharist, a gift for us. When we hear these words from James, if we have the wrong perspective of God, we might walk away feeling like low-down, dirty sinners who don't stand a chance because he, he gives to us a picture of participation in faith that is a very high standard. But when we understand that that standard that we are called to live out and embody is done so through the provision and the grace and the goodness of a benevolent God who wants nothing but the best, not just for us, but for the world that we are called to make a difference in. Because through his work in our lives, we are bearing the first fruits of the kind of world God wants to ultimately see when the kingdom of God comes fully to bear on the present. Amen? That through, what, through the way we live now in our participation 
in our living out, in our, in our carrying out of this divine initiative that God has started in us through our reception of the word of truth. That as we do that, we are testifying. We are the first fruits of what God ultimately plans for the entire cosmos. The peace of God, the shalom, the reign of God. We become active participants and active, active witnesses of what God has in store for us. Can you say amen this morning? Stand with me. Our musicians will come and get ready. Each week here at Renovatus, we receive the bread and the cup. Not just as a reminder of the obedience of Christ and his blessing given to us, his Eucharist, but also as participation in it, as active participants of the receiving of his body that is broken for us and his blood that was spilled for us. So if our servers will come and get ready. If you're here this morning, we're going to, as we do every week, receive that gift, receive that blessing, receive that communion. Everyone is invited this morning to receive. Everyone may partake of the body and cup of our Lord. But if you don't want to receive this morning, that's fine. We don't judge you. There's no pressure. But if you'd like to, our table is open and you may receive. You can take advantage of this opportunity to not only reflect on the greatest example of embodied faithfulness to God, but also to participate in it, to be receivers of it, and to be blessed by it. We'll also have our prayer partners at the front this morning if you need special prayer for anything at all. Make sure you stop by one of our prayer partners and they'll be glad to pray with you. Let's read the invitation this morning together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.